is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This week's episode is brought to you by The Story is a State of Mind School. Early registration is now open for The Story Intensive, an amazing course happening this fall, all about craft and brilliant writing, offered by the one and only Sarah Selecki, who you all know as a repeat guest on the show. Find out how you can sign up for the course and request me as your TA at carolinedonahue.com story. There will also be some group coaching calls for those who sign up through me and other fun stuff going on over there. So again, the link to check that out is carolinedonahue.com story. Okay, now on with the show. This is episode 57. My guest today is Wesley Brown, and he's the author of three published novels, Tragic Magic, Darktown Strutters, and Push Comes to Shove. He's also the author of a short story collection, Dance of the Infidels, and four produced plays, Boogie Woogie and Booker T, Life During Wartime, A Prophet Among Them, and Dark Meat on a Funny Mind. He co-edited the multicultural anthologies, Imagining America, a fiction anthology, and a nonfiction anthology, Visions of America. He edited the Teachers and Writer's Guide to Frederick Douglass and wrote the narration for a segment of the PBS documentary, W.E.B. Dubois, A Biography in Four Voices. He's Professor Emeritus at Rutgers University and currently teaches literature and creative writing at Bard College at Simons Rock and lives in Chatham Center, New York. If you've ever struggled with dialogue or getting conversations down on paper is a challenge for you in your writing, this is your episode. I adored having this conversation with Wesley where we explored crossovers between dialogue and jazz music and all the ways that you can capture the voice of a character. It was really such a delight and I know you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right. Hi, Wesley. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thank you, Caroline, for uh, inviting me to come on and uh, talk to you. Yeah, of course. So one of the things I'm really excited about in looking at your amazing career of writing is how many different formats you've used in writing from plays to short stories to novels to anthologies. And how how has it been to have so many different kinds of books that you've, you've worked on? Well, it seems uh, to have developed organically. I started, uh, when I first started, you know, when I started thinking about writing seriously, I started writing poetry. So, uh, and that seemed to, uh, and I was always concerned with language and the play of language uh, from, you know, the conversations that I heard growing up, uh, relatives, and even unwittingly, even though I was not necessarily aware of it at the time, I was uh, I was always uh, attuned to the way people spoke. So I think poetry was a natural outgrowth of that, of those experiences. And then short stories seem to uh, sort of evolve out of that and then a longer form. And uh, plays seem to be a different way to write poetry since it also had to do with the spoken voice. So um, it's not anything I, I think I consciously um, was uh, working toward, but it seemed that, that uh, there were certain forms that seemed to uh, dictate to me or to uh, suggest to me that either a poem, a short story, or a longer form, a novel, uh, seemed to um, be appropriate. 
So it sounds like both the love of language, but also the idea itself wanted a particular form? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, I get plays for me usually uh, when I get the sense that, I, that I'm, a play seems to be uh, sort of moving inside me in a certain way has a lot to do with time or a kind of constraint in terms of space where something is occurring and the time frame within which certain events occur. And usually when I'm thinking about that, then I seem to, it seems to me that a play seems to be what manifests itself. Uh, I know I wrote a play once about uh, the um, killing of, uh, of a young black man, Michael Stewart, um, and it takes place within a certain time frame. And so to me, that seemed to, to um, dictate that I would, uh, that that form of trying to, to uh, dramatize a story about a young man who gets caught up in uh, this confrontation with transit authority police, and then when his family tries to do something about what is, about his murder, uh, they find that in some ways he has to, they have to relinquish their uh, possession of him or their sense of him as a person because once the public sphere you know becomes part of who he is or how he's defined then they can't grieve in the way that they would normally because in order to do something about it he has to become larger than the single individual that he is so that seemed to 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 me to to man to be more geared toward the writing of a play so things like that uh, i guess you know sort of announce themselves to me as I'm struggling with trying to figure out what is troubling me about any particular uh, subject or uh, image that seems to be, uh, you know, nagging me. It's, it's amazing to me. There's something about plays that feels very different than the rest because, I mean, of course, sometimes books get made into movies or, or other kinds of media, but writing something that specifically you know people are going to perform and are going to put out there feels to me as a writer really different and something that always seemed a little scary to attempt. Well, yes. Uh, I guess in the first instance, you are, as you point out, uh, writing something that is going to be heard by people. There'll be an audience. And so the response to it is much more immediate uh, as well as you have these uh, actual people on stage who are speaking words that you have written, and so uh, you have to write dialogue that actors can speak. And it's not as though somebody writes dialogue in a, um, a short story or a novel that that can be uh, immediately transferred to the stage uh, because it's, it's an entirely different way of... Uh, of dealing with the way in which people speak, and it's it's a lot more ruthless, I think, uh, in in a play than it is in a short story, uh, because there's certain kinds of cadences that have to be uh, adhered to in a play, speech-wise, that in in you could get away with in terms of an extended kind of monologue. Not that you don't have extended monologues in plays, but uh, uh, as uh, I think a play, playwright Romulus Linney. Uh, one said that a play has to be written uh, with an axe, you know, because <laughs> you really have to uh, 
bludgeon the, the, the language into submission so that actors can sort of take these words in and, and have them uh, sort of assimilate them and have them organically come out of them, embody them in a way that isn't necessarily the case, obviously, on the page uh, in a short story. So you're right about that, that uh, plays are a different animal. And you have a live audience. You have actual people, you know, who are uh, presenting, uh, trying to embody these characters. And of course, the response is a lot more immediate because uh, you've got you've got an hour and a half, two hours to get it done. And attention, if you want attention to be paid, you really have to be quite rigorous in the way in which you you uh, have characters interact and the way in which things get revealed uh, and surprises, uh, the way in which surprises or revelations occur. How is it as a writer, I have so many questions, but the first one is, um, how is it as a writer hearing your work performed and watching people react to it? Because, you know, when you write a book, you don't get to go and visit every house where someone's reading the book and kind of mm -hmm. sit there and watch them as they read it. Yeah, well, it, it's both... Uh, it can be both exhilarating as well as humbling and uh, uh, frightening because in, in the way that in which plays uh, develop, you know, once you have written a play and then you, if you do a, a, a reading of it, stage reading, and you can hear, so in, you, know, you can hear immediately when things are not working. Because things that you that a writer, a playwright may hear in his or her head about the way a character is speaking and how they might uh, respond or react in a certain situation verbally is one thing. But when the when you have actors who actually then have to embody those words and uh, create tension, conflict, uh, but not give too much away, uh, it's quite a different experience. But when it works, it's there's nothing quite like it because what you have is a, the formation of this uh, temporary uh, ephemeral community that uh, uh, that comes to be that that sort of brings comes to life and then it's like when you strike I guess when the when the tent is is struck uh, at the end of a of, of one of those. Uh, tent shows, you know, and everything is leveled and, and people, you know, the audience goes home and the actors leave and they, and what was once something vibrant and alive uh, and lived is not there, it, but it's taken away by those who participated in it. So, and unlike a book that you always can return to, but in some ways, I guess a play is, is probably more akin to, uh, music in that way, a concert, a performance, where uh, there's this communal sense of having experienced something, and then uh, it's gone, or at least gone in the sense that the presentation of it is 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 not there. You, you can hold on to it, but only in some distorted way of what you recall about what the experience was. And in that respect, I guess theater is very much like uh, that, uh, uh, sort of the nonverbal form of of uh, uh, creative experience, which is music, because there is this collective sense of of, of an experience uh, that uh, takes place, and then two hours later, it's over. Yeah, it's true. I remember um, 
I rem- even if it's the same actors and the same production, I remember seeing a production of in Los Angeles of Burn This. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that, yeah, on Broadway, yeah. Yeah, so they did it here, I think, and, and it was so wonderful. I went with a friend, and I said to another friend, oh, we've got to go see this again. And it was completely different the second time I saw it, even though it was the same mm-hmm. actors in the same production. It seems like the written play is is much more like, yeah, like the score of a music mm-hmm. production, and it's going to be different every time. Yeah. And, of course, especially with a, uh, a form like jazz, which is not, uh, which is improvisational, uh, where it can never, you can never duplicate an experience of a particular composition in the same way. It just will, it, it's just impossible to do that because the approach of the musicians, the audience's response is going to be different and the way it's played. And jazz is so much about reaction in the moment. Uh, and even I would say that even classical music, even though know, it's you know notated and it's there on the page and they're playing exactly what's been written, the the performance is going to be different uh, in terms of where people, where the musicians, where the artists are emotionally, and the approach to the music uh, in that performance is not going to be the same as it was two weeks before or a year or more before. I totally want to talk about jazz because I want to talk about your book. And I also, okay, I want to talk about two things and we can figure out which one we want to go with first. I want to talk about your book and jazz. And I also want to talk about dialogue because so many people have trouble with dialogue and getting it right. And I think Mm -hmm. all of these things are connected. So as you're talking, it makes me think that jazz in some way is sort of the perfect musical equivalent of good dialogue because it is so spontaneous and sort of encapsulates music responding to each other is is that what you're trying to accomplish in writing yeah i think so it's sort of it's in some ways a fool's errand because there's no way to uh capture in language the immediacy that occurs in the uh in uh the way in which musicians communicate with each other in those moments when they are having this conversation and so uh my effort even when I wasn't that aware of it with writing about characters, writing stories where there was, they were informed by jazz or inflections of the music improvisationally was an effort to find a kind of verbal equivalent to what jazz musicians do uh, when they are, um, after, of course, much practice and revision, uh, then in the performance of what they had been rehearsing and practicing, uh, then deliver something that is uh, on the spot. And the element of surprise is always when things get uh, exciting. It's Miles yes. Davis once said something which, to the effect, is what you do with the mistakes because you're never going to play anything or create anything that, even in your own, one's own mind, is perfect or is without. Uh, cracks or flaws, but that's what makes jazz such a human uh, expression, because it's uh, you're dealing with you know the limitations of the musicians as well as what you do given each musician's limitations in terms of what they can actually communicate uh, on their instrument and to one another, and because it's it's in the moment, there is uh, it can be 
unlike anything elder experience. So I guess for me, trying to write dialogue in some respects uh, is is a way in which characters try to make up who they are or convey who they are as they're being confronted by someone else who is uh, engaging with them on something that could be friendly, hostile. Um, and uh, I seem to have found my way into that kind of equivalency or at least effort to uh, approximate what uh, jazz musicians do without necessarily having decided to do that. I, I think my immersion in music, jazz in particular, for most of my life seemed to make that uh, transition. And, and when I started writing seriously, seemed to make that inevitable. Yeah. That that would be the approach that I would take. I love that. So not only have you written all of this, but you've been a professor and taught many, many, many students. I wonder if you have any thoughts on where you see people getting that wrong, where they miss the mark with dialogue. Probably uh, when there's an effort to be t too explicit to try to, because to, most of the time when we communicate with one another, we, we don't say exactly what we mean. I mean, we're saying something approximating what we mean, but there's so many other things that are going on emotionally. So we deflect, we, we signify, we say one thing, we meet another. We, we say something to someone that seems to be a compliment, but it could be backhanded, but with uh, humor. And so all of these things, um, I think, when writing dialogue, I try to be aware of as much as one can when you're writing something uh, and you're trying to discover what it, the story is about as you're writing it without uh, trying to impose things on characters so that they they say what you have already, what you already believe or what you think they should say. And so I think it's the element, What when dialogue doesn't work, it seems to me that it, it's when it loses its strangeness, its idiosyncratic element, when the characters say things that one would expect someone to say in a certain situation. But what I think, when, and I think that is when it doesn't work, but when characters say something that is unexpected and but truthful and do, says something about who they are in a way that hasn't been revealed before. They have presented themselves in one way, and then they say something that seems to be at odds with that. So I think that that's when dialogue, I think, really uh, crackles and comes to life, when it is not predictable, when it um, allows for the element of surprise, which, of course, in listening to music, and jazz in particular, uh, you hear certain compositions and um, there, I think, when I hear certain uh, jazz compositions that I've heard any number of times, but then when I hear, uh, say, there's a, there's a, uh, a singer, uh, Cecile McLaurin Salvant, who is not quite 30. She's really been emerging as one of the uh, um, really most uh, significant jazz vocalists in the last five, six years. And she, I mean, when I first heard, got the CD of her, she did a rendition of I Didn't Know What Time It Was. And mm. I've heard that probably hundreds of times. But her approach to it just, I, it just stopped me in my tracks. And it was something in terms of the tempo, 
kind of mid-range, not not so much. It wasn't a ballad, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't a race. It didn't race through. And she seemed to have found an interpretation of of that composition that made it uh, entirely new to me as a listener. So I think that that's what when characters can say things or communicate with one another in ways that they're saying things that's not that you have never heard people say that things like this before express those sentiments but it is said in a way in a kind of uh, syntax a kind of word order that gets your attention because it uh, you're alerted to something that you thought you were aware of but in not quite that way it's like looking at a Robert that Robert Frank photograph uh, in the Hollywood Hills where he took a photograph of the Hollywood sign from behind mm-hmm. and that I mean it, that was just uh, uh, I was so stunned by that because I never considered what that sign and everything it represents in terms of this larger than life uh, industry and the, the sort of the dream factory being looked at from behind with all these wooden struts that are holding up this edifice that from behind doesn't look as formidable uh, you know, the the veneer for at the front is held up by something that seems to be kind of rickety and a lot more fragile and cracked than it would appear from the front. So I think that's what happens when dialogue works. And when it doesn't work, it seems to me it is uh, it doesn't have the element of uh, misdirection, indirection, looking at something or hearing somebody say something that you that for the first time it seems that that you're hearing it in a way that as though that you've never heard it before even though it's a sentiment that has been expressed by people for you know for generations yeah that's so true because you know you just want to see the front of the sign and think it's sort of magically hovering there but yeah sometimes i'll read a story or something and it's not working and you just see the struts and you can see it working hard to be driven in a certain direction, and then, and then when the reader is, seems to be ahead of the story that knows exactly what someone is going to say before they say it or where the story is headed, then um, there, are some, there are problems there uh, because life, uh, and it's <laughs> for better and worse, is very much about the imp- uh, imponderables, things that we don't we could never have imagined. We think we have become worldly and we pretty much know what's going on and then something occurs and it's as though we've lost our moorings, that the floor has been pulled out from under us. In the sense that it's not that it was totally unexpected, but we didn't think it would happen in quite that way. Yeah, it's sort of the nature of worry. If you think you worry about all the potential situations, then it never happens, no matter how much you worry exactly how you planned. So let's talk about your book, because you have a book that's just come out, and it's a collection of short stories. Yeah, some of the stories, they're linked, some of the stories are linked, uh, about five of them, four or five of them are linked, and then there are three, I think, standalone stories. Uh, But basically, it's it's set during the... uh, the 1930s and 40s in the United States during what has become known as the Big Band era. And these four characters, uh, a black woman, a white woman, a black man, a white man, 
they meet at the Savoy Ballroom in the late 30s, uh, which was a dance emporium, and all of the the major uh, bands played there. And it was just really phenomenal communication between uh, the dancers, people who were dancing in conversation and dialogue with the bands who were feeding, they would feed off of each other. And so the stories are about the relationship that these four characters have with the music and and dance uh, as a way in terms of the conversation uh, that is going on and what that what that does to invigorate both the music and their own lives, but how those relationships change uh, with the coming of the war, World War II, uh, both in terms of the music and the relationships between the characters. So exciting. The intersection of music and writing is something I haven't thought about as much or we haven't talked about as much on the show, but as you're talking about it, it makes so much sense. And feels essential. Do you listen to music while you write or do you keep those things separate? No, that would that's impossible. The the, the quality of the music would be such that I, I would not want to write. <laughs> there would there would be what you know, I the, the juxtaposition would be so daunting that I would stop writing and say, Well I might I defer to the superior form <laughs> and I would just listen. So, but I listen. I listen to music all the time. Every day I'm listening. But when I'm writing, I uh, I really need to to try to get involved in the struggle to 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 try to see if I can have these words do the work that they're supposed to do. That I hope that they can do. And the uh, the presence of music would be so uh, daunting that it would, uh, I would just probably have to throw up my hands because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's uh, no competition. You know? so, so for me, writing is, uh, uh, is something that I have to do in, uh, in, not in terms of in silence, in terms of allowing the voices uh, that are in my head and the music that I've already assimilated that's inside me to play itself out on the on the page or on the computer screen uh and, and to see where that takes me uh it's you know it's like most memories uh that even when i spoke earlier about you you go to a concert or you see a play and two hours later it's over but you it's not that you don't take that experience or pieces of that experience with you and they kind of reassemble themselves in some way and then you uh, revisit them, distort them, and so in, in writing, I I allow for whatever those experiences, particularly in these short stories, uh, I've had musically to kind of of their own volition to insinuate themselves in back into the lives of these characters and how they interact with one another and with the music, and hope that uh, I will be surprised by what uh, they. Uh, by what they do, by what they, uh, how they, in in the ways in which they uh, relate to one another. So how did you know that this was a collection of stories rather than a novel when you knew there was going to be an ongoing interaction between these four characters? Well, I had, um, I had been, um, this goes back to the late 80s, I had been 
involved in a uh, with uh, working with Dexter Gordon, a tenor saxophone player, one of the dominant musicians of the uh, um, post-World War II period, particularly with the coming of advent of modern jazz. Uh, and But Dexter passed away in 1990. And so I wanted to somehow, and the book never got to the was not I you know it wasn't much work done on it and it uh so I, I felt I wanted to pay some homage to um Dexter Gordon and not just to Dexter Gordon but to the musicians of that generation. And it seemed to me uh short stories would allow me to um move about, cast about and not just tell Dexter's story but to tell the story of sort of rove in, around into uh, different parts of that era with these fictional characters as they bump into these uh, these um, jazz icons. So it seemed to me that short stories, writing short stories about that period uh, seemed to me to be a more effective way of capturing, um, you know, the, the era. And so that's, you know, and that's, uh, I guess, how the stories began. I knew that I wanted uh, to write a story specifically about Dexter Gordon, which became the last story that I wrote uh, was uh, uh, focused on Dexter Gordon. And that's a standalone story. It doesn't connect directly with the stories where these other f four characters are involved. But I knew I had to write a story about him specifically uh, but I knew it was going to be more of a collection of of different stories coming from uh, a variety of perspectives from these uh, four characters. And then there would be one that worked out where a kind of cute collective story where all of them appear and the perspective is pretty much dispersed among the four of them. And you have a lot of other real-life musicians in the stories as well. So you're interspersing fictional characters as well as real-life musicians, correct? Yeah, uh, from uh, Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, uh, Blossom Deary, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, well, there's a standalone story, Coleman Hawkins, Billy Eckstein, uh, Earl Hines, Louis Armstrong is, is in one of the stories on Coleman Hawkins. So, you know, they kind of, uh, since these characters are in that world, they, they they sort of push themselves into a world where they come in contact with these musicians. Then I uh, had to find a way, how could I, uh, you know, bring how, the, how these musicians, what, what role would they play in the lives of these, uh, directly in terms of interaction, contact with these uh, fictional characters. And I read um, a number of uh, memoirs and biographies of, of, of people like Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, Billie Holiday, um, Coleman Hawkins, um, and you know some social histories of the period. And because I, again, having listened to these, uh, these artists for most of my uh, life, uh, there was a sense I felt that I didn't want to didn't want to read too much because I felt that if uh, 
because I didn't want it to be a kind of documentation, but I wanted it to be in some ways to approximate the music to have a, to have the stories be open ended and allow for surprise and for things that were uh perhaps in many instances improbable uh occurring there's a story on Coleman Hawkins where uh he comes back uh it, it's the factual factually he did come back to the United States from Europe in 1939 with the war uh beginning in Europe and he is greeted by uh sort of musicians who younger generation musicians who want to take him on to see if he still can strut his stuff and they want to pretty much take him down because it's, they believe it's their time and so he uh is you know ready for the challenge and he uh, but he wants it to be on his terms. He does. He doesn't allow himself to be drawn into uh, these uh, carving contests or these jam sessions until the moment when he wants to. And so this, the story is called Body and Soul, and he refuses to play that in any context which would be uh, would be uh, sort of a, a time of reckoning. Seemed that if anyone would try to best him in playing that composition, but he ends up playing it in. This improbable meeting. He's at Radio City uh, Music Hall in New York and recording, and he doesn't want to record Body and Soul. And he goes, goes, he leaves, and he sees that there's, you know, there are a lot of radio programs going on. And he looks in this room, the door is open, and there is Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. And so there's this uh, somewhat surreal encounter that he has with Edgar Bergen. Uh, and Charlie McCarthy, because in some ways they are, as artists, doing similar things. They are projecting their voice through an instrument, uh, and but they both put the, the the instrument or the the uh, the vessel that they that they breathe through uh, in a case. And he sees Bergberg um, taking Charlie McCarthy out, and they, there's a thing that where they come to come to this understanding that somehow they are doing this, something similar. Uh, but of course, Charlie McCarthy, being uh, I guess uh, Edgar Bergen's alter ego, uh, uh, tries to disrupt things a bit, and so there's this sort of uh, triumvirate of of these uh, Bergen, McCarthy, and Coleman Hawkins having this conversation uh, that is uh, uh, not necessarily all that cordial. So, of course, that is something that never occurred, but I didn't know that that story was going in that direction. But I, I saw, I saw a, a photograph of Mary Ellen Mark uh, when I was out in Minnesota some years ago uh, at, at the, I think, at the museum uh, in uh, the Art, Muse Art Institute in uh, Minneapolis. And it was a photograph that she took of... Um, Edgar Bergen, near the end of his life, I mean, he that's when he was probably in his 70s, um, either placing Charlie McCarthy back into the case or pulling him out. It's unclear, but with a, a kind of care and, and gentleness. And it's just something I looked at it for quite a while, and and I was working on the story of Coleman Hawkins, and, and I somehow got sort of, as I worked on the story, it seemed that I kept thinking about that photograph and mm -hmm. and wondering, well, what's the I don't know why I'm thinking about this. What's the relationship? 
And uh, I, as I wrote the story, I, I came to the realization that the, the characters uh, enlighten me that uh, that they both have, you know, speak through or, you know, or ventriloquize themselves in some profound way through an instrument. Mm. Uh, one metal, the other wooden, you know, and uh, they speak through this other um, object. And so that became, you know, I guess the way the story kind of uh, culminates. But I was, you know, so that's the kind of thing that uh, you, I always wait for. Hopefully it will occur. Sometimes it, it, it occurs in ways that are more successful than others. But that was a story that kind of led me in a way I had no, I had no uh, preparation for where that story would how why how that story would take me where Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy would meet <laughs> Hawkins and his tenor saxophone. That's amazing. So you're just peacefully writing a story about Coleman Hawkins, and he suddenly mm -hmm. is walking down the hallway in the in yeah. Radio City, and there they are. Yeah, I mean, I I the photograph stayed in my mind. I knew there was some way. I had to bring the two of them together after okay. I kept getting this nagging sensation that that these that Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen they are they they apparently are you know um, pushing me says you know hey, you know you gotta we're in this <laughs> so, and so I uh, I started well how can I get them and so I I I'd read that I was listening to some Charlie Edgar Bergen Charlie McCarthy recordings that I had. Uh, radio um, uh, recordings that I, I purchased, and I read that they often um, they did live feeds from Hollywood, and sometimes oh. they come to New York and they do the show from Radio City. And so I said, "Well, okay, um, this is like 1939. Uh, the, um, it's possible. It, it's plausible that that would be where they would meet." And so I just kind of tried to struggle on to see how, how this convergence would take place dramatically. And it did. That's amazing. It's, I think that's something that's so fascinating is that there is this convergence between having an idea and having a concept for a story and, or a novel or a play or anything. And, and then there's the process of writing it where even if you have some sort of outline and idea, there are these things that come out of nowhere and who knows where yeah. they come from. And what's one of the reasons why I don't, I've never written, I mean, I take notes for terms of stories, things I want to remember, but I don't, I've never done outlines for stories or novels because I don't want that kind of, of uh, con those constraints to kind of shoehorn me into forcing uh, a narrative in a direction that I've already predetermined. Mm. So I usually don't write um, any outlines. I have some kind of image of something, uh, and then I just begin and see where that uh, will lead me. If in the Dexter Gordon story, he came to New York uh, with the Lionel Hampton band. He was all of, uh, I think, not quite 18 in 1940, I think 1940, 1941, January. And I knew that's where the story began, beyond. And I knew that he was ultimately going to end up have, playing with uh, these idols of his at a place called Mittens, 
in Harlem, uh, and the people on the bandstand, the musicians on the bandstand would be uh, Thelonious Monk, Kenny Clark, the Ben Webster, and um, Lester Young. And, uh, I mean, he idolized these men. And so, but I knew that that's probably where, because he would be forced to get up uh, and to, you know, show them show his wares. And he's this kid. Uh, and so I knew that that's where it would probably end. But I didn't necessarily knew, know how I would get there. Mm. But I knew that he would be coming, the story would begin when they're coming in on a bus going over the George Washington Bridge into crossing it from New Jersey into upper Manhattan. And so then you know, I said, well, let me see how I, how I get to uh, Mittens from there. Uh, and each story, you know, usually begins at a certain point uh, in a moment when something is about to change. It's a transitional point. In another story, the, uh, the first story, Women from Mars, about an all-black women's band in the, from the 1940s called The Darlings of Rhythm uh, that were never recorded, which was why I, my interest was Pete to write a story about them. Because, uh, you know, the bands, most of the, the bands with, you know, male bands, most a lot of those men uh, were drafted. Mm. So and the door for... Um, women who were musicians to uh, make their way in the world through performing at those venues where the, the previously the uh, bands headed by men and predominated, uh, dominated by men in terms of the players were no longer around. And I knew that it would begin with this young woman uh, whose family, mother and father are musicians and they traveled around and the father plays trombone, and she plays trombone. And so he's leaving. Things have gotten tight. They can't seem to – they can't do the, perform as a, as a trio any longer, and the, the jobs are sort of becoming scarce. So the father's going off to see if he can find a band to play with, and the daughter, who doesn't want to stay put in D.C., where the mother is, who's a singer, uh, they sort of feel that she needs to get out on her own and, and not rely on them – to direct the course of her life. And so she ends up going to New York with a recommendation to check out this band, the, uh, the Darlings of Rhythm, to see if she can get a job as a trombone player. And so that's where it started. And from there, it's, uh, you know, uh, I had no idea where it was going to end it. And it sort of re uh, ends with her finally uh, becoming, realizing what her father meant when he's when he said, you know, the question for you is, what are you going to do? And mm -hmm. she didn't quite know. And it ends with her playing uh, in Chicago at the Grand Terrace Ballroom with the uh, Darlings of Rhythm, where she uh, is playing a trombone solo. And Billie Holiday is, is they are the uh, front end, the, the, the group is playing opening for Billie Holiday, who's not thrilled about an all-colored woman's band. She, uh, Billie Holiday thinks this is some kind of... Uh, uh, freak show. Oh no! <laughs> Not thinking that we have they they only put these these uh, these wenches out there because uh, I'm I'm singing because she had gotten fired from the Grand Terrace Ballroom about ten years before by, by the uh, manager because he felt that she sang too slow, and so uh, <gasps> and so she he she thinks that perhaps this is some kind of conspiracy. They're still trying to to stick it to her. Oh and, no! So. And it ends with her kind of having this uh, sort of moment 
playing with with uh, uh, with Billie Holiday. So all of that, of course, I didn't know that that's where the story was going. Uh, but I just followed uh, Florence Gatling, uh, the main character, the black woman trombone player, and to see where she would uh, where she would lead me. Amazing. Well, the book is called Dance of the Infidels, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, as well as links to many of your other books. And thank you so, so much for coming on and talking about all of this. I know everyone's going to love hearing everything you've said today. Well, thank you, Caroline, for inviting me. It's, uh, you know, it's often, you know, you write something, I think it's true for many, most artists, is you, you create something and and then you you really don't think about uh, it in in trying to discuss what it is that you've done because you've struggled with trying to figure out how to do it. Uh, and so being, I guess, asking these questions, I guess, is an opportunity for me to discover what it is I thought I was doing. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.